0: All right, good morning, New Life East. If you have been seated, would you stand with me this morning? I know you're just getting comfortable, but we're going to stand and say the words of the Nicene Creed together this morning as we begin proclaiming what it is that we believe as the people of God, what we've believed everywhere across all time. So would you join me this morning? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. But on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And he ascended into heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, and he has spoken through the prophets. And we believe in one the holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And if you believe that, everybody say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's great to be here with you this morning. Thank you to those of you who came here in person. And for those of you who are watching online, we love you. We miss you. We hope that you are safe and well. And Pastor Andrew, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you and this congregation. As Pastor Andrew said just a second ago, this is the last Sunday before Advent which actually means it's the last Sunday of the Christian year. The last Sunday of the Christian calendar actually ends today uh, Is the last Sunday starting the last week. And then next Sunday, we begin a whole new season, the season of Advent. And so it's fortunate that we're also ending this series, that this is our last week in our series, to the last book of the Bible, that mysterious and strange and exciting book of Revelation. And so we're ending here and then turning into Advent. And Advent is this time where we prepare our hearts to celebrate Christ's first coming. We sort of get on the Christmas train and are starting to get excited about what that celebration means. But at the same time, it's a season of profound waiting. Not just waiting for Christmas morning, but a season where we're waiting for Christ to come again. That we are anticipating to the, the moment we celebrate, yes, Christ came. While at the same time, we're waiting and longing and yearning and aching and crying out and saying, Christ come again which is why it's so perfect that we're ending today in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22 we're in Revelation 22 we hear Jesus saying to us three times I am coming soon I am coming soon I am coming soon but before we get there we got to go back to Revelation 21 verse 9 you can turn there or follow along on the screens this is our opening passage for today says this, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues, you remember those from a couple weeks ago, that angel spoke to John and said, come, he said, and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And then he took me in a spirit-inspired trance to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, out of heaven from God. And this city, this city had God's glory. It had God's nature, his essence, his character. And its brilliance was like a priceless jewel, like jasper that was a clear as crystal. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Do you remember the first time you read a book or watched a movie that just had an ending that you didn't see coming that sort of surprise moment where you're wondering the whole movie what is going on and then suddenly at the end there's a big reveal and you're like whoa wait a second maybe for you it was the first time that you saw the usual suspects I haven't seen that Andrew told me about it or maybe it was the sixth sense if you remember that movie with Bruce Willis where you get to the end of the movie and your mind is just Poof. what has happened maybe it's another story or something for you actually when I was trying to remember different examples uh, for this sermon I went on uh, the internet and I searched like surprise endings in movies and there was this list of 25 movies with surprise endings and what surprised me was that the passion of the Christ was number 11 on the list <laughs> Was that a shocker to people? (laughs) We've had a couple thousand years to get comfortable with that story, but it was there. But I'll never forget that moment of, of seeing some of those movies, and then you go back and you watch it a second time, and the whole time you're watching it, you're kind of kicking yourself going, how did I not see that coming? Why was I not smart enough to pick up on it? But then by the time you watch it a third or fourth time, have you noticed how it just kind of starts to diminish? And by the third or the fourth time, you're like, oh yeah, Yeah, this is what happens. It's not much of a shocker anymore because you know it and you see it and you watch it sort of all along. And I think what can happen for us with the scriptures and particularly what can happen with us with the book of Revelation is the end of the story can become so familiar to us that it begins to lose its shock and its awe. That we begin to forget just how startling this is. And not only how startling it is just in general, but we can particularly forget and miss how startling it was for John and how shocking it was for the churches that John was writing to that there are so many pieces within these last couple of chapters that would have caused the people who are initially hearing this to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, say that again? What are you talking about? In good preacher fashion today, I'm just going to focus on three of those uh, because that's all we have time for today. But I want to focus on three surprising elements to the end, Revelation 21 and 22, something that John sees, something that John doesn't see and something that John hears and the first thing is something that John sees and what he sees is he sees a city sees new Jerusalem he sees new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven now this isn't a total surprise Isaiah saw something really similar he saw a city as well but if we're honest there's something a bit unexpected about this because cities have a bit of a shady reputation right, especially in the scriptures. Now, I grew up thinking cities were scary. I grew up in a small rural community in northern Iowa, 2,700 people in our town, one stoplight in the whole county, and we were safe and the cities were scary, right? You go there only when you have to, right? But you stay here in this little enclave. And even in the scriptures, we see that the first city is associated with the Bible's first murderer, That Adam and Eve they're in this garden and they're living in paradise and they rebel against God and they get exiled from this place called Eden this place of pleasure they get exiled from there and they have kids and their one son kills another son and then he goes and builds the first city like even their origins have something that are suspicious about them like really and then as the text goes on, we get to maybe the most famous city in the Old Testament, that city called Babel. We here all of humanity collectively says, you know what? We're going to express our rebellion against God in this very incredible way. And we're going to build this city reaching up to the heavens to make a name for ourselves so that we won't be scattered, so we won't be spread across the earth and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and do the things that God told us to do so we're going to build a city and of course that story ends quite badly even the city that we think about being the sort of perfection idea of a city in the scriptures Jerusalem is a city that becomes so corrupt that God leaves it And it's destroyed, not just once, but it's destroyed twice. Even as John is writing, the walls of Jerusalem are in ruin after the city has been destroyed by Rome. In John's own vision, the first city that we're kind of introduced to is a city called Fallen Babylon. It's the habitation for everything that's evil. And it's the personification of Rome in John's day and so many places in ours. So when we think about cities, we're like, cities are sketchy. Cities are irredeemable. We don't expect a city. What we're expecting when we come to the end of the story is we're expecting another garden, right? Why don't we go back there? Why can't we get another Eden? Why do we get a story here, even for us, when we think about where we're going to go to meet with God? How many of us think like, oh, I just really, really want to go to New York City, that I might commune with Jesus there? Right, when we're thinking about where we're going to go to meet with God, we start imagining a cabin in the mountains. We start thinking about sitting on the beach or walking next to a stream. This past week, I spent 30 minutes just west of Steamboat at this pastor's retreat center where it was quiet. And I could hear the birds and I could see the stars. When we think about going to meet with God, like our Henry David Thoreau comes out of us and we're like, I want to go to the woods to live deliberately and to find Jesus there. We don't think about going to cities, but John describes our hope as a city that is coming down from heaven. Why does he choose this image? Why is it that he sees that? Well, cities symbolize human enterprise. They symbolize our human vocation. They symbolize for us the work of our hands, the things that we build. When we think of cities, we think of a mass of humanity. And oftentimes, some of our worst pictures of cities are the results of the mass of humanity that is gathered there and building that Place, But cities symbolize this work that we have. It's us getting our hands in the soil and beginning to build something. And what do humans build? We build cities. And so here this image of New Jerusalem symbolizes for us God's affirmation of our vocation. This is what he is reminding us. So when we imagine the beginning of this story, and we imagine the end of the story, we sort of imagine a static perfection, right? That everything in the garden was just perfect, and all humanity had to do was just not mess it up, right? And at the end, it will be the same way, but just now we don't have the ability to mess it up anymore, right? But it's a static perfection, but that's not how the scriptures describe it, The scriptures describe Eden as a place that humanity is placed inside of to work, to till the soil, to bring out its fruitfulness, to farm it, to protect it, to get to work in the middle of it. It's not static, it's dynamic, and humans are needed in the midst of it. So just like creation was dynamic, new creation is as well, and we will have a role to play. Pastor Andrew said this last week. He said that in the new world, we will still have work to do. It just won't be hard and resisted anymore. The work will be filled with joy rather than resistance. See, I think God always meant for Eden to become a garden city. There's always the intention is that humans would cause what God had made to flourish even more, to partner with him in his ongoing creative work that does not have limits to it, that continues on and on and on forever. And certainly we made a mess of it the first time. But what we've seen throughout Revelation is that God does not abandon this world. This is not an escape plan for how we get out of this place so the whole thing can burn. God does not abandon this place, but he also does not abandon us and doesn't abandon our role and doesn't abandon what he designed and created you and me for. His desire is to renew this whole place And for us to be renewed in his image and his likeness that we might carry on the role we were intended to play from the very beginning. See, New Jerusalem reminds us that God's not through with us. That God's not through with you. That God's not through with me. New New Jerusalem reminds us that there is nothing that is irredeemable. There's nothing that God can't get his hands on and redeem it And restore it and renew it there's nothing in your life friends that god can't get his hands on and redeem it and renew it and restore it there's nothing that has happened to you and there's nothing that you have done that disqualify you from eternal participation in the ongoing work of god There's nothing that disqualifies you. There's nothing that God can't get his hands around. There's nothing that is too dead that God can't resurrect inside of you and breathe new life into it. And for that part of your life that you thought was dead, that you thought was too broken, that you thought was too far away for him to put his hands around, to breathe life into it, to resurrect it, and to cause that to be life-giving for other people. This is what New Jerusalem reminds us of, is that God is not through with us yet, that our role, that humanity, that you and me, we are not beyond yeah. redemption. Yeah. The second thing is something that John doesn't see. And John, as he's seeing this image of this city coming down, he looks and he surveys the whole city, and he's expecting to see something. And it's sort of like you walk into a kitchen and you expect to see an oven right? Otherwise, how are you going to make the turkey? Like, you're expecting to see things. He sees this city coming, and he expects something to be at the center of the city, and he doesn't see it. He doesn't see a temple. There's a temple missing from this image. It's so startling, and then he even comments on it. He says in Revelation 21, I didn't see a temple. I was expecting it. I was looking for it, and it wasn't there because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. See, if we even can conceive of going to seek God in a city, we imagine going to a temple, we imagine going to a church, imagine going to a cathedral. If we're going to go to Rome, and we're going to go there looking for Jesus, we might show up at Vatican City and go to St. Peter's Cathedral. We're going to go someplace where like, this is a holy place in the midst of this God-forsaken city. We're going to go there. And instead, we get this image, and there's a city, and there is no place like that. And in the Jewish world, this would have been incredibly startling. Because for them, the temple was the center of the universe. The temple was the center of everything. Everything. The temple was the place that God dwelled in the middle of the holy city of Jerusalem. The temple was the center of their imagination. The temple is what they had their heart set on because that's where God was. So in the Psalms, they're constantly talking about going up to Jerusalem and going into the temple. They're looking for a city with a temple in it, and here there isn't one. But from Sinai on, the people of God have associated God's presence with a place. They've associated with a temple. They've associated with a a room that someone could go into every once in a while. That there was a place that God actually dwelled. And it was a surprise to get a city. It was an even bigger surprise to get one without a temple. A place that God inhabits, even in the ancient world. In the ancient Near East, where the stories of the scriptures arise, there were other creation stories around the world. And in all of those creation stories, it culminates with the creation of a temple and God inhabiting that temple. So we get the same surprise in Genesis that God creates the whole world and what's not there? There's no temple. Why? Because God has always wanted to indwell his entire creation. He hasn't wanted to in any way be confined to a particular space. He wants to fill up everything with his presence. So what we see happen here in Revelation is exactly what happens in Genesis, is that God takes up residence where? He takes up residence everywhere with his people. As Andrew said last week, he was walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. So here in Revelation, he does the exact same thing. What's really interesting is New Jerusalem is described as a city that is 12,000 stadia on every side. It's the size of the known world at the time of John's writing. You take it and you put that dimensions right over top and it's the whole world that John knew. And not only is it described as 12,000 by 12,000, but it's also then described as Twelve thousand vertically it's described as a cube you're like who describes a city as a cube what is happening that's a minecraft sort of space but for john he knows what this cube means the cube is the exact same way that the holy of holies is described so here's what happens at the end of the book of revelation is that the whole world will become the holy of holies This is what John sees. It's like, there's no temple because God's dwelling everywhere. The whole place has become the holy of holies. And God's presence permeates everything. He's not confined in any way. See, temples are often viewed as places that limit people's access to God. But more often than not, they actually become places where we limit God's access to us that we sort of confine God off to this space over here where we go on with the rest of our lives without Him. And we don't necessarily do that always with temples, but we do it sometimes with even church gatherings. Yes, God, you can have my attention on Sunday morning, but not so much on Friday nights. Or maybe we think about it in terms of, yes, God, you can speak into my college choice or my career choice, Or what job I'm going to do next. But don't you dare say anything about my sexuality. I don't want you to speak anything in there. Yes, God, I'm going to give you this tithe. You can have this 10%. But please don't say anything about how I earn it and what I do with the rest of it. I want to confine you out of there. Yes, this idea of loving my neighbor. Oh, I like that. I like the idea of loving the person who looks like me and lives like me and talks like me and votes like me and does everything else like me. That's great. I can handle that. I will love those people. I will worship with those people. I will be neighbors with those people. Oh, wait a second. Love my enemy? Now that's a bit too far. I'm not sure I'm ready to go. There, it's a bit too much to ask. We have all these ways that we can try to confine God's presence to particular places in our lives, but Revelation is an invitation. It's an invitation to allow the presence, the reign, and the rule of God to permeate every single aspect of us. It's an invitation to live now like we will live then to live wholly abandoned and wholly caught up in the presence of God, and to allow the presence of God to permeate all of us. This is why there's no temple there, because the presence permeates everything. And the invitation just from Revelation is this, will we welcome God into every aspect of our life? Will we welcome him into every area or we continue to try to confine him in certain ways. The third surprise is what John hears. John hears Jesus say three times, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. What John hears echoes actually what he hears at the very beginning in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, he heard this. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who... or who is and who was and who is coming i'm the one who is and who was and who is coming in the old testament we have this remarkable passage in exodus where moses is having this confrontation with god And God is commissioning him to go back to Egypt to bring his people up out of slavery. And Moses gets into this exchange with God where he wants to know his name. I don't know why he wants to know this at this particular time. But he gets into this conversation and God reveals his name to him and he says, I am who I am. He gives him this phrase, I am who I am. And throughout then the scriptures and for the people of God, it was common to play with this a little bit. The like God says, I am who I am. So there's oftentimes conversations to say, like, well, God is. To take that to be verb and to put it in the present tense. God is. And then to say, well, if God is, then God also was. All right? He's always. So God is and God was. And then we'll play with it a little bit further and say God will be. That God is, and he was, and he will be. This is true, and this is what John expects to hear, but this isn't what John hears. He doesn't hear, I am, and I was, and I will be. He doesn't hear the one who is, and who was, and who will be. What he hears is the one who is, and who was, and who is coming, he gets a present tense, and then a past tense, and then a present tense again. And then instead of getting to be verb, and to be verb, and then a to be verb, he gets to be, to be, and then he gets to come. The verb changes. He doesn't get the verb he wants, and he doesn't get into the tense that he wants. And I know that's nerdy, and it's not school day, but it's this shock to him. It's like, wait a second, who is coming? And he says it three times Revelation 22, 7. Look, I'm coming soon, 22.12. Look, I'm coming soon, 22.20. Yes, I am coming soon. Do you get it? Do you hear it? John. And all of these in Revelation 22 are in the present tense. All in the present tense. See, when we think about Christ coming, what we want to know is when. Like, give me a date on the calendar so we can mark it, Right? And we go through all sorts of lengths to come up with all kinds of algorithms to be able to try to predict that day. And we've had 100% failure rate at this point as far as getting that date right. We want to know when. And we also want to know what's taking so long. (laughs) Right? Why? Like, soon, 2,000 years? What's taking so long? What is happening? But John... What he hears and what he wants us to know is that Jesus is already coming. What he wants us to hear is that Jesus is already coming. That his return is not some distant future event that we have to sort of grit our teeth and cross our fingers for. It's like maybe that day will someday happen. He says, no, it's actually already happening. Jesus is already coming. We just haven't realized the fullness of it yet. We haven't experienced the fullness. There will come a day when there is no longer a question that Jesus will come in glory. The trumpets will sound it will be clear to us. But we know as the people of God that Jesus is already coming. We know this was because we've actually received the down payment of it. That the Holy Spirit has already come. And that the Holy Spirit is continually coming to us. Paul described it this way He says, Now the one who prepared us for this very thing is God. And God gave us the Spirit as a down payment for our home, as a down payment for our new bodies in New Jerusalem. It's already coming. Through the Spirit, the future has actually already arrived in us, the future is already present. And it's arriving continually in us and through us. That Jesus is present. That Jesus is coming. That Jesus is at work. The Lord, my friends, is not far from you. The Lord is not a long way off from this world. The Lord is not a long ways away from you and your situation the law the Lord is not far away from the present realities that we're facing in our day the Lord is already coming he's already here he's already at work in and through the spirit at work in and through the people of God and his coming is a present reality he is coming this is why the revelation ends with teaching us to invite God the same way that he's invited us. To invite his continual coming into our lives. It ends with this final prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Like, this is the climactic prayer of the Bible. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, the very Jesus who says to us, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, says, come and follow me. The very Jesus that is constantly sending an invitation to us that also in some way waits for us to invite his ongoing work in our lives. As he invites us to draw near to him, we invite him to draw near to us. As he invites us to repent and to follow him, we invite him to fill our lives completely and fully and ongoingly. As he says, come to me, we say, Lord Jesus, come to us. And we live with the present awareness of God's presence already here in us and through us through the Holy Spirit. And we come even to the table each week and we respond to his invitation. Come to me. And so we come the same way that the disciples have come throughout 2,000 years. We repent and we follow him. And then there comes a moment as we come to the table where we say, come Holy Spirit, come. And we go from responding to Jesus' invitation to issuing one of our own. And we live in this constant space of receiving Christ's invitation and inviting Him to come more fully into our lives. And so friends, let's respond this morning to His invitation, to His present coming and his future arrival that will be here soon. Let's respond with our prayer of confession this morning. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. Friends, it's my joy to announce to us this morning the good news, that in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who is the one who was and the one who is coming, that in his name we are forgiven. So, as people who have been raised to new life with Christ. Would you stand with me this morning and let's sing our praise to him.
1: bow before your throne, all the elders cast their crowns before the land of God. voices voice is a small- Come on, this morning we're singing to a God that if He were to do nothing else for us, He's already done more than enough. Let's lift our voices this morning, day and night, night and day, sing it out.
2: Be with you. No, I meant it when I said it. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right. It's right for all that you are, O God, and for all that you have done. It is right. In fact, the only appropriate response is thanks. Thank you. And we praise you. You are, as Pastor Jason said, the God who surprises us. One theologian said, that might be the best name for you we could ever dream up. Surprise. That's who you are. The basic difference between a living God and a dead God is that a living God can surprise you. And here and now, you're surprising us. Again, I got the sense this morning while I was worshiping and thinking about this moment of communion. You know, when we come to the table... We don't believe that we're just remembering some stuff about Jesus. But as Jason said, we're experiencing Jesus, the already coming one in our midst, he's here. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we're to approach the table reverently because the power of God is in fact at the table. Some of you, you need healing in your body this morning. And I don't know, it might be a chronic illness or something that just popped up recently but I just felt a word from the Lord that there's healing for you at the table this morning if you'll reach out in faith. Jesus is here. The same Jesus that walked the dusty roads of Galilee 2,000 years ago is here. You go, no, he's not. It's just a bread and cup. Well, listen, he's the God of the universe. If he decides to claim something and make it his body, that's his prerogative. He can do what he wants to do, all right? And he's healing your body here and now. And so Jesus, we recognize you here. If you're holding the elements in your hand, just begin to recognize Jesus and adore Jesus in your heart as though you were seeing him face to face, as though you were one of his disciples, as though you were sitting at the table. Would you begin to let adoration rise like incense in your heart? We recognize you here and we remember that on the night that you were betrayed after you had given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples and you said, take this all of you and eat. But this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Take the bread and break it again. Take the cup and bless it again. And minister your life to us one more time here at the table. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God. They're given for the people of God. Let's take the bread together. And the cup of salvation, let's take it. And Can we go back into that bridge day and night, night and day?
1: Night and day, let incense rise.
2: Let your prayer rise like incense. Come on, family. give God praise this morning. Lift up your worship to him. (laughs) But from him, Paul says, and through him and to him are all things. That's what we did this morning. We received his life and we gave it back to him as offering, as praise this morning. Would you lift up your hands one more time and receive this benediction as you go? As you go from this place, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you always. Thank you. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come forward this morning. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray with you. Remember, if you're new, we'd love to see you at Connect Central. Got a little gift for you. Go in God's grace and mercy and peace. We'll see you next week. Happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Enjoy those turkeys.